As I mentioned earlier in our service, it was a delight to have our children's musical last Sunday here during the 11 o'clock service. We cleared pretty much everything off of the chancel area, and we, we had a fake Noah's Ark. We had children from the nursery come out dressed like giraffes, and I think my son was a cow, uh, and they crawled across the chancel area trying to get onto Noah, Noah's Ark, and uh, it really was a remarkable thing to, to get to witness. Um, at the very, very beginning of the service, uh, I was talking to the kids while the little ticker was going down before we were about to start, and I saw that we had a wig uh, for one of our kids. They were supposed to wear it, and I was looking at the wig, and I was thinking about how I've always wished to have hair. <laughs> some of you, some of you, few of you in this room know what that's like, uh, to wish to have hair, and I saw the wig, and everything in me just wanted to put the wig on, and so I looked at the kids, and I said, wouldn't it be funny if I put the wig on at the beginning part of the service? And they said, oh, you'll never do it, Pastor Taylor. You're never, ever going to do it. I said, oh, of course, I would never, ever do it, which, and then I put it on. And I turned around and addressed the entire congregation, looking like Samson himself with this giant uh, mop of hair on my head. Um, it was so much fun to get to, to sit and actually worship uh, in the pews among everybody last week and, and to get to hear these stories from Scripture, to hear the kids sing. Uh, there was a great moment where inexplicably the youngest kids left from the chancel area and they, they put on these kind of mining caps with flashlights and they came up here and they were kind of crawling around and I think it was Thatcher Dickinson who said, um, who are all these people? And then they were the minor prophets. You know, because like there's a whole, it was so good. I mean, it's like the most church joke I've ever heard in my life. And it was, uh, it was perfect. Um, after the service ended, we were singing our final song and I was the Pied Piper. The kids followed me out the doors of the sanctuary while everyone continued to sing our final hymn. And the kids, of course, beelined over for the lemonade we had on the lawn. We had cookies and lemonade, and they're still dressed in their, like, first-century robes, you know, with they've, they've got these little cinchers on, tying them, and they're drinking lemonade and spilling all over their mouths, and there's cookie crumbles all over the front lawn of the church, and they're talking about how much fun they had, and it was just so, so, so beautiful. Sixteen kids from our church were up here on this chancel last week. Sixteen on Sunday. It was so beautiful. And then on Tuesday, 19 kids went to school in Texas, and they didn't come home. Would you please pray with me? Lord, be with us. Be with them. And be with everyone in between. Amen. Our scripture reading today comes from the very last book of scripture, the 22nd chapter. This is Revelation 22, verses 12 through 14, 16 through 17, and 20 through 21. This is literally the end of the Bible. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let everyone who hears say, come. And let everyone who thirsts come. Let anyone who washes or wishes to take the water of life as a gift come. The one who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. 
Would you please pray with me once again? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My favorite theologian, Karl Barth, was known for saying, uh, preachers ought to preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. At least that's what people like to say that Karl Barth said. What he actually said was, you need to read your Bibles and you need to read your newspapers, but you need to interpret your newspapers from your Bible. Things happen in the world and the church responds by casting the light of the gospel on the events of the world. For us to gather in this place week after week as if everything that happens out there doesn't affect us when we're in here is a denial of reality. But at the same time, as Christians, we know that what we do here shapes how we behave out there. But the work of the church is risky business. It's risky business because violence has a way of making a mockery of our words. We say things like, never again, and then it happens again. We say things like, this is not who we are, but it is usually exactly who we are. We say things like, the time has come for change, and things usually stay the same. What then can we, or for that matter, I, say in a time such as this, a time riddled with violence? What does it say about us as a people? That our, our moral leaders these days are not those who stand in pulpits or even those who sit in pews, but those who host late-night talk shows and those who moderate debates on the cable news networks. Have we, the church... Not something to say. The Lord says, see, I'm coming soon. I am the A and I am the Z. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. The Bible, this strange new world that it opens up for us, it gives life and it gives life abundant when we begin to have scripturally shaped imaginations. When we start to live in a world that scripture produces. Week after week, month after month, year after year, we sit before the throne of the Lord and we read God's words. The Bible is stained with the cost of God's love. We, we put our Bible here up at the table, and it, of course, is without blemish. It is literally turned to the final page of its book today. But it is a living witness to the confounding reality of God. This is a stained book we read this week after week because our lives depend on it. And I don't know about you, but for me this week, I needed desperately to cling to the promises of this book. This book that points to the, the living God made manifest in the person of Jesus. I needed some hope because it feels so hopeless. On Monday morning, after the children had done their musical, on Monday morning, I was sitting at the breakfast table with my son, my six-year-old son, a kindergartner. I was regaling him with compliments about how wonderful he did in the musical, and he looked at me over his breakfast, and he said, Dad, what were your lockdown drills like when you were in school? And I said, Buddy, when I was your age, we didn't have lockdown drills at school. And he said, Why not? It's not as if the world of my youth was better or safer than the world today, but something has clearly changed, and not for the better. That was our conversation on Monday morning, and on Tuesday morning, 19 children didn't come home from school in Texas, and neither did two teachers. 
Blessed are those who weep with those who weep and who mourn with those who mourn. Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. The spirit and the church say, come, Lord Jesus. Why? Why do we beckon for Jesus to come? Because we need all the help we can get. All is not as it should be. Jesus is the A and the Z, every letter in between. As the divine word of God, Jesus is present in our letters and in our words, in our speech. Jesus speaks when we no longer know what to say. So after reading through the news on Tuesday, on Wednesday, I was here at the church and I was praying and praying and praying. And I grabbed Eric Anderson, as his office is right next to mine, and I said, Eric, we need to get some chairs. We need to take some chairs from the children's Sunday school room and we need to put them out on the front lawn. And so we did. We took 19 children's chairs and we took two adult chairs and we put them out on the front lawn as a witness to the 19 children whose chairs are now empty at school and to those two chairs of the teachers who can no longer teach. After we set them up, I came back here in the sanctuary and before I closed the doors, I looked over my shoulders and I burst into tears. I just cried and cried and cried and I prayed for Jesus to come. Come, Jesus, and rend open our hardened hearts. Come, Lord Jesus, guide us in the way of justice and truth. Come, Jesus, and rectify our wrongs. And yet, for as much as we pray for Jesus to come, the Lord also calls for us to come. Come to the altar. It's why churches, regardless of denominational affiliation or theological positioning, they all have altars in their sanctuaries. It's a place of holiness where we can kneel before the Lord. You see, God beckons us to the altar so that we might be altered. We are not invited to the altar because we are good or virtuous or even right. We are brought before the throne of God because we are not what we should be. But God has a habit of making something of our nothing. Peter writes in an early epistle to the church, judgment comes first for the household of God. We then, we're not some shining star for the rest of the world to follow. We don't scoff at the world and all of its trespasses. Instead, we exist to confess the condition of our condition. We gather to tell the truth about who we are and whose we are. It's why we say things like, most merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. We have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. That's the prayer we say every month before we receive communion. It is a recognition of who we are and why we so desperately need to put something holy into us that we might become who God is calling us to be. Because if it's up to us alone, it's not going to happen. Confession is often used as another word to talk about repentance. Before we come to the altar, before we come to the throne, we confess, we repent of our wrongs. But repentance is not simply feeling sorry for our sins. It's not just about feeling guilty for what we've done or left undone. Guilt and shame, they don't produce change. In fact, guilt and shame, more often than not, they usually just lead to more guilt and to more shame. Change comes when we discover, oddly enough, that the God we expected to clobber us with guilt instead clobbers us with love. 
and with grace. God does not need to destroy us in order to deliver us. God's love really is so powerful and so strange that it is the difference that makes all the difference in the world. Put another way, when we finally come to grips with the confounding nature of God's love for people even like us, then we can't help ourselves but be different than we were before. Therefore, we don't, we don't fall to our knees to get God to do something for us. We fall to our knees because God has already done the something we need. The aforementioned Karl Barth, the one who said you need to hold your newspapers and your Bibles at the same time, he also said that only Christians are sinners. I think what he meant is only those who know how much they are loved can know how much they have betrayed that love. In other words, it's only in the light of grace that we can be strong enough to admit that we are wrong and something has changed in us and that we have work to do. You know, contrary to how it might often feel in church or even how it's said in church, God is not done with us. That's why the psalmist can cry out, create in me a clean heart, O God. It's because the psalmist knows that our hearts are indeed unclean. We need something done to us. And that something has a name. It's Jesus. So this week, as I've been Pouring over the news, I was reminded of a story from Viktor Frankl, this Austrian psychiatrist, about his experience when he was in a concentration camp. He says that one evening when we were already resting on the floor of our hut, we were dead tired, soup bowls in our hand, a fellow prisoner rushed in and asked us to run out onto the assembly grounds to see the beautiful sunset. Standing outside, we saw these sinister clouds glowing in the west, and the whole sky was alive with clouds of ever-changing shapes and colors from steel blue to blood red. The desolate gray huts provided a sharp contrast to the beauty in the sky, and the puddles on the muddy ground, they were reflecting the beauty of the air. And then after minutes of moving silence, one prisoner said to another, Oh, how beautiful the world could be! beautiful the world could be. I think, I believe that when we gather together for worship, when we meet at the altar, when we sing the songs that we sing, when we pray our prayers, it is like the beauty of that sunset reflecting in the puddles of a hopeless gray death camp. God's grace is a thing of immense and overwhelming beauty and it shines on our world of pain and loss and death. But what we do as Christians, whenever we gather together, it's not merely to do so to console ourselves because of how bad the world is. This isn't a reprieve from the world so that we can have a taste of God's beautiful grace. It awakens within us a holy impatience. Church gives us a faithful sense of outrage, an awareness of how beautiful the world could be, but is not. At least not yet. Grace isn't expensive. It's not even cheap. Grace is free, but discipleship, discipleship comes with a cost. Following the Lord means considering how God and Christ knew the deep pain of brokenness of life, that we creatures are cruel and disappointing, that things don't often work out the way we want them to. And yet God does not 
stand aloof from our human suffering, all while offering trite platitudes about the beyond. Instead, God comes right to us, right in the muck and in the mire of life, and says, follow me. Come, Lord Jesus. Those are some of the last words in the Bible. This is literally the end of words. All that needs to be said is said, and Scripture concludes with a call for the Lord to come. Come, Lord Jesus. From our fears and sins, release us. Come, Lord Jesus, show us how beautiful the world could be if only we were willing to take steps into God's kingdom rather than our own. Come, Lord Jesus, fill us with the grace of holy impatience because something's got to change. I offer this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen.